Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is what will be uh, chapter 6. Right. Just lay that, you know. Right. Mark chapter 6. I want to welcome the uh, the crew team back there, Campus Crusades for Christ, right? Or, you guys came up and helped, uh, right. helped gut a lot of houses yesterday. They're standing back there. Uh, we do have some seats all up here on the front and on the left. If, if anybody needs to sit down or come file in, you're more than welcome to come grab a seat now. Mark chapter 6. Last week we began uh, our study of Mark chapter 6 and we read about Jesus' visit to his hometown of Nazareth. There in Nazareth, Jesus preached as he did in every town and in every region as he had before, but this was a little bit different. The people whom he was preaching to were very familiar with him. Uh, they were from uh, uh, his hometown, so they would have known of him, they knew of his family, they knew of his siblings. And they thought that their familiarity with Jesus uh, equaled uh, their true knowledge of Jesus. But as we saw last week, that familiarity with Jesus is not the same thing as genuine faith in Jesus. And, and Jesus' own people reject him and reject his message. And we talked a lot about the sin of the pride and the arrogance that uh, these people had, assuming that they knew who Jesus was and who Jesus should be. And Jesus marvels at their faithlessness. And through their example, we are warned not to assume that we know what God should be like or what he is like, but rather to humble ourselves under what God actually says about himself and what God has actually done. But we're not the only benefactors of that moment uh, reading thousands of years later uh, of this rejection of Jesus. I mean, we learned from that story, but there were some other eyes that were on Jesus and on this interaction in that moment, and those are the eyes of Jesus' disciples. So imagine with me Jesus' 12 disciples who have left everything to follow Jesus, ones that did not know Jesus from Adam, and Jesus walks up to them and he says, follow me, and there's something about this man that causes them to literally drop everything, their livelihoods, their families, and then to follow this man because they believe he's the Savior and Lord, and they're following this man, they follow him back to his hometown, and they watch their master, their Lord, their Savior be rejected by the same people he would have went to school with, grew up with. And the apostles are thinking, how in the world can, can Jesus experience this type of rejection from people who should know better, who should know who he is? And so what Mark does in the Gospel of Mark is he now turns your attention to those 12 disciples, how their mission and ministry would similarly be a mission and ministry of acceptance and rejection. So look at verse 7 with me of Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. I'm going to read and then pause and pray one more time. And Jesus called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits, and he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not 
put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear your word. Help us to understand your word this morning. And help us to see the relevance of the truths that reside here in this passage for our life and our ministry. Please help me to speak your word and not my own. In Jesus' name, amen. When we think about Jesus and his ministry, uh, we often think about his miracles first. We think about the big moments where he's walking on water or where he's calming a storm or where he's feeding 5,000. Then we tend to think about his teaching. Although Jesus, as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, would make primary his teaching and the works secondary as supporter, supporting works of the teaching, we think miracles and then we think big public sort of sermons, sermons on the mount and big moments where, where the crowds are pressing in on Jesus so much he's got to get into the boat and step back without being crushed. But we've got to ask ourselves, what was Jesus doing in the in-between, the big moments of awesomeness? And we realize that in the Gospels, much of Jesus' ministry is done sitting around with 12 stinky dudes. Fishermen, tax collectors, non-impressive people whom Jesus is teaching not in big sermons, but over a meal. We see that in everything Jesus does, he's actually prepping people to carry on Jesus' mission when Jesus ascends to the Father. Jesus is, Jesus is intention, uh, he's intentional from the moment he called his disciples. He intends to teach them and equip them and employ them to do a work. And so even in going to Nazareth and having his disciples follow and having his disciples watch as Jesus gets rejected in his own hometown, Jesus is teaching his disciples something. And now in this passage, as Jesus turns to his disciples and for the very first time in the gospel sends them out to do something. I mean, thus far, all we've seen is they're just kind of like puppy dogging Jesus around and complaining sometimes, right? All we've seen is sort of just passive, sort of like just following Jesus around. But now here's the first time in the gospel where you see Jesus turning back to the disciples and saying, your turn. And he sends them out by two on this sort of like mini short-term little mission trip. And he gives them specific instructions. Now there's some, certainly some unique things about this passage. Uh, God gives the apostles this unique measure of authority to perform the same kinds of miracles that Jesus was performing to validate the message. So there's certainly some unique things happening here, but there are also some not so unique things. Some things about the way that Jesus sends them out that we can learn about. So the question we want to ask as we come to the text this morning is what are the principles from this sending out that affect my own sending out? That affect what Jesus wants to do in my life? And we're going to look at three. So this is number one. Number one is sort of a simple blanket uh, 
principle we get from this passage, and it's this, that God has a mission for his people. We all need this morning to accept this reality, that the God of the universe does not need us to accomplish anything. Let me say that again. We need to accept this reality. God does not need you to accomplish anything. He's, he's not in heaven when you screw up thinking, oh, that ruined my plan. I was really going to save this person if, you know, Drew just would have had a better quiet time this morning. That's, that's not how it works. He does not need us for anything. The, the, it is clear in this passage, the 12 have no power in and of themselves to do anything. They have to receive power from Jesus in order to carry out Jesus' plan. Jesus gives them authority for this particular trip. The authority is not theirs to wield as they please. It's on borrowed time. It is Jesus' authority that he gives them or else they would not be able to do anything. We've seen clearly that Jesus has all authority to speak as he pleases, to do what he pleases. Even the wind, the waves obey him, but Jesus chooses these 12 ragtag group of young men to carry out the most important mission in the history of the universe. Now, now Jesus, if he can just with a word, stop winds and waves, can Jesus not just with a word cause his message to be written in the sky over the regions and the towns and the communities that he was sending his disciples into? Could he not just snap his fingers and say, well, everyone received the message and understand it perfectly? But he doesn't do that. It seems like from the beginning, God's intention for the universe is that he be glorified and enjoyed. And one of the unique ways that God is glorified is by taking his precious, very weak, very small creatures and doing grand, glorious things through them. It seems that one of the ways that God intends to be glorified is for little humans like us to rely on him, to, to, to draw our strength from him, and then to participate in glorifying him to the ends of the earth. God has a mission for his people. And now that includes those 12 apostles, but that includes every single person here. You have inside your soul this, this yearning, this something that tells you this is not all that there is. You have this yearning in your soul that I need to have purpose in life. That there's, there's some mission, some something that I should be accomplished. Now, the world tells you that that mission is your own happiness and that you can find it in all these kinds of places. Now, they're not wrong. Your joy is a part of the mission. But where you find it is a whole different story. God's intention, God's big purpose is that he be ultimately glorified in every corner of the universe and that you find joy in glorifying him. Like you Amen. will find joy in fulfilling the purpose that God has for you, which is to spread the fame and glory of that God. Yes. 
So that yearning in you, man, I'm supposed to do something more important with my money. I'm supposed to do something more important with my time. That sort of thing that feels like life is slipping by and nothing seems to satisfy that yearning for a greater purpose. My generation is all about humanitarian effort. My generation is all about, you know, saving the environment or doing something. It, they're, they're, we're, we're grasping, trying to find something bigger than ourselves. Because our little social media profile gets depressing over time. Because we realize this is worthless. And there has to be more. And I think the more is the mission of God. There's more to be learned from this text. Not just that there is a mission, but there's... There's the nature of this mission. Jesus, notice Jesus' instruction for this short-term mission trip. And, and the way that he instructs them, he is uh, teaching them with this packing list. Mark chapter 6, verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Truth number two, principle number two, that I think Jesus is teaching with this moment, is that the mission requires faith. Jesus provides a packing list, and it looks a little different than what you might expect. It looks a little different than what my packing list looks like when I go on a mission trip, especially if my wife has anything to say about it. <laughs> I get onto the plane to go to Southeast Asia, and I find snacks I didn't even know existed. She just crams them into crevices in my bag. I find gummy bears and crackers and I, I pack for everything. I've got more tissue paper than I need for a year packed in that suitcase. But Jesus tells these guys, don't take bread. Jesus tells these guys, don't take an extra tunic. Now that's a big deal because where they live, it's super hot in the day and then it's freezing cold at night. So why do you need a second tunic? Because you might be sleeping outside. And while you don't need two tunics during the day, you definitely need two tunics at night. So what's Jesus saying? Don't take anything to cover up at night. Somebody's gonna invite you in. Somebody's, you're, you're gonna have shelter. You don't need the second tunic, you'll have shelter. And they're like, we don't know anybody. Don't take the second tunic. The point is not that this packing list is supposed to be replicated when we go out on a mission from the Lord. You are not sinning. If you don't, if you, uh, uh, Taylor Lancaster would really, uh, if she could not take a jacket onto the plane, uh, she would be really suffering for the Lord Jesus. I don't think we're supposed to replicate this packing list exactly. On this occasion, Jesus wants these disciples to learn something. And what he wants them to learn is that if the mission is gonna be completed, you're gonna to have to take steps of faith where you don't know where you're gonna stay or what's gonna happen, but you only know to take the next step. You only know to follow where Jesus has said to go. And you don't even know how he's gonna provide for you when you get there. Jesus gives this packing list and there's more than just even that happening in the text. The exact items that he tells the 12 to take are the same items that the people of Israel were told to grab when they left the slavery of Egypt into the promised land. You look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, as the people prepare to flee their homes and to go wherever in the world God was leading them. This is what they're told in Exodus 12, 11. 
with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. And by the blood of the Lamb, they would be saved, and they would be sent out into the wilderness of uncharted territory where they had no idea where they were going to sleep or where their food was going to come from. You see the foreshadowing. You see what Jesus is pointing them back to. I'm doing a new thing, a new work of salvation that's going to require you to trust me just like the people of Israel had to trust me as I brought them out of slavery. I'm taking you to a new promised land. And you are now going to trust the Messiah who has come, the Savior and Lord. If we're going to participate in God's mission, we need to go ahead and expect to come face to face with our own shortcomings, weaknesses, lack of our resources, and then take steps of faith anyways, trusting that God is the provider of our needs, not our wants but our needs. And that if God has called us to a mission that is bigger than ourselves, he intends for you to accomplish that mission only through a God who is bigger than you. He's calling you something that you cannot do. You cannot accomplish the salvation of your coworker. You cannot accomplish the salvation of your family member. You are called to take steps in faith and trust God who is provider of what you need to accomplish what he has called you to. The mission requires faith. <coughs> One more principle that we see in the text. Verse 10. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus wants to prepare them with something here. Truth number three, principle number three. The message will be both accepted and rejected. They've just watched Jesus himself be rejected. And Jesus says, as you go, there is, it doesn't matter how faithful you are, how articulate you are, how well you preach, how solid your arguments will be, the door will be slammed in your face. Yep. Some conversations will not go that well. Some will inevitably reject the message you are preaching and thus reject the salvation that Jesus is offering. Jesus' instructions to them to, to go in when they are received and then to shake the dust off their feet when they are rejected is an instruction to move on with the, with the mission. Rejection is what you should expect. Don't let apparent failures stop you from pressing forward in what God has called you to do in sharing the message of Jesus. If someone rejects your message, you're in good company. They rejected the Jesus of the message. So do not be discouraged when your mission feels fruitless. Jesus' instruction is to shake it off and move on to the next part of the mission. Because what you're required to do is not to secure anybody's salvation. You're, what you're required to do is not to make some endeavor fruitful. What you're required to do is to be faithful to the God of the universe who has invited you to participate in the most important mission in the history of the universe. 
That's what you're required to do. I have to remind myself of that often. That no matter what happens as a result of this sermon, whether you guys reject this sermon or, or fall asleep during this sermon or whether there's three people under this tent or 300 people under this tent, that's not on, that's not on my to-do list. My to-do list is to preach what is here. The words of the living God. We were in 2 Corinthians a few weeks back and I thought it would be good just to read from there as Paul contemplates the same thing happening in his own life and ministry. And this is what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us, he, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, fragrance from death to death. To the other, fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. That is a description that I would love for someone to use over my own life and ministry. Someone who walked around with the aroma of Jesus Christ and some thought it stunk and some thought it was the most beautiful thing they have ever smelled in their life. God has a mission for his people. The mission requires faith and the message will be both accepted and rejected. Well, maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering, okay, but what is the message? What is it that these guys being sent out two by two, what is it that they are proclaiming? What's the message to be accepted or rejected? What message does this church teach? And Mark summarizes the message here in Mark 6 with one word and two actions. The word is repent. Mark 6, 12. Read it with me. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. When you hear the word repent, you may think of those Christians on the street corner with big signs spewing hateful things and bullhorns yelling repent. But the word repent in the Bible does not carry that same sort of connotation. At one point in the scriptures, repent is even talked, repentance is talked about as a gift of grace. It is an opportunity to turn away from something that leads to death and to turn toward someone who leads to life. Repent literally means to turn, to turn away from a particular way of life, a change of heart, a change of direction. We, we are predisposed to worship ourselves and to act as if we are God of our own lives. We're predisposed to worship created things rather than creator. We're predisposed to live for our own little self-made mission that leads to nowhere rather than the big God-side mission that leads to eternity. In short, we are natural sinners who are walking the wrong way. 
And the message that the apostles were taking to communities was turn from that way and turn to the one who has come, who has the words of eternal life, who has the words of forgiveness and salvation and meaning in life. Turn from those things which will lead you empty inside and dead in the end. And turn to the one who will fill you and lead to life forever. The message the apostles are teaching is a message of repent and find forgiveness and find grace and find life. The message this morning for you guys is the same thing. How is it that someone is saved? It's, it's a turning to Jesus and accepting and believing in what he has said and done. That he lived the life you couldn't live and died the death you deserved to die. He rose again and he's the rightful Lord over your life now and forever. It is a turning from self and to the Lord Jesus. Something you can do right now in your seat. Because it's not about what you can do, it's about what he did and whether you'll trust it. But that's not just the way into Christianity. Repent is the way we walk in Christianity every day. You can ask my wife, I have repenting to do every day. I have sinning that I do every day, and every day I turn a little more away from myself and toward my Savior. So Mark summarizes the message with a one word and two actions. The word was repent. The actions were they began to cast out demons and heal diseases. They began to do what Jesus was doing. As we said before, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, these signs, these miracles were a testimony of the kingdom of God that is promised to all who believe in the Messiah. A kingdom of God that is promised to all who believe in Jesus. A kingdom where there are no more evil forces, there is no more sin, and there is no more disease. The healings that the apostles were doing, we don't read that text and say, oh, okay, well, I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to go out and do that exact same thing today. And every day we should be healing diseases. The, the point of this is that, that in the Gospel of Mark, when you see these miracles, it's a pulling back the curtain of the promise of the kingdom of God to come. That what you've been promised is a world that will be remade where there will be no more storms and no more cancer and no more funerals. What you've been promised is a total renewal of everything that's broken because Jesus died and rose again and promised that not only will all who believe be resurrected, but this entire world will be resurrected to be a new world where we enjoy one another and we enjoy our Lord forever. So the message is repent. And the actions point to the promise that is really good. Yes, sir. That message, that mission, is worth sharing in a world that lacks hope, in a world that lacks understanding, in a world that lacks purpose, but ultimately in a world that lacks forgiveness of the ways they've sinned against the Holy God.